Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. It is a Thursday, folks. It is July the 28th, year of our Lord. 2022 just keeps rolling right along, and we got to roll right along with it. But we're going to keep trying to turn down the noise of the news cycle, talk about some important things today. We're going to do a double dose, a little different program, double dose of overseas foreign policy things going on in the world. First, our buddy Roy Matthews, a Young Voices contributor. Usually we have him on for domestic policy. He's got a piece out uh, in International Policy Digest talking about Kazakhstan, an important country. Why? Because like some other countries we've been covering, there's a lot of cross streams going on. They border China. They've been under the thumb of first the Soviet Union and now Russia for a very long time. And its leader has stood up to Vladimir Putin, at least publicly. Is that a show? Is that for real? What about their oil reserves? There's also American oil companies involved. A lot of moving parts of an important crossroads between Asia and Europe. We'll get into that with Roy Matthews. Talk a little Kazakhstan, a little closer to home, about 90 minutes off the coast, by the way. Cuba is in trouble, or if you're JFK, Cuba. Uh, there's a lot of trouble going on down there. There's been a lot of protests. There's been a crackdown, a lot of draconian measures to put people back in line, but it's not solving the problems. Food shortages, fuel shortages. And now, on top of everything else they got going on, the healthcare system is not doing well, despite what some of our uh, communist friends in the media keep wanting to tell you. Cassandra Shant, another Young Voices contributor, is going to join us. We're going to talk about Cuba, what's going on down there, what's part of it is the embargo, what's new, what's old, what's ongoing issues. A lot of stuff to unpack at Cuba, something that's just off our coast that we don't pay enough attention to, haven't paid enough attention to it for a long time, getting really ugly for our friends in Cuba. Going to talk about that on the program today. Let's start domestically, though, something a little closer to home. You know, we like these stories where you have something that's, you know, common knowledge or just everybody assumes it's true. And it turns out it's not true. And we like to cover stories like that because we're always refining the information rotation we have. You got to challenge your own thinking and presuppositions and your priors. Make sure you know what you're talking about. There's been this thing going around for a long term time that the millennials were just lazy and didn't want to work. Well, the Washington Post has a very interesting piece out that that's not entirely the case. I'm going to join this piece about halfway through, about 40 minutes to Allen's North in Allen, Texas. Jason Cabrera, 20, knows the teen workforce inside and out. Inside, because until his most recent birthday, he was a teen. And out, because he's been a general manager at Lane's Chicken Fingers since he was 19, hiring and managing a largely teen workforce first at the store in Allen, and now in nearby Louisville. Cabrera used to see dozens of applications each week, and he could take his pick of industry veterans. These days, he's lucky if he gets a single application. 
These worker shortages make businesses like Lane's far more willing to accommodate the hassle inherent in hiring modern teens who spend nine months of the year juggling school, sports, and outside activities. But once summer hits, Cabrera said, most of these kids just want to work like all former kids did, and that's all they want to do. The Zoomers were consistent. It wasn't teens who changed. It was the businesses. So we got on the phone again. Lynn James, owner of Flowers and Cup. Flowers and Cappuccino, sorry, that's a weird combination, by Lasting Visions, a bright spot of floral arrangements and fancy coffees in Bowman, a rural hubbub of 1,470 on North Dakota's rolling western plains. She's also the mayor, by the way. Gotta love small towns. In the past, Washington Post says, James said she struggled to find teen workers. It's impossible to build a regular schedule around their myriad obligations at school, the community, and their homes and ranches. But with workers in short supply, teen hiring became a necessity, so James embraced the flexibility. She began drawing up schedules that could accommodate teen activities and hire a mix of young folks involved in different sports and clubs who don't all need to be off at the same time. We still have good coverage and staffing, and yet the kids can still be kids, James said. Other businesses told a similar story. Around the time Zoomers started returning to the workforce, the competition for workers heated up, and folks who mastered the teen hiring had significant advantages. For example, when Chad Smith and his wife Carol started Sugar Peach, I think I'm saying this right, I'm trying, Sugar Peach, a decade ago serving soul food, fried fish, fried chicken, and sides, I'm in, uh, in the fast-growing Iowa City suburb of North Liberty, they didn't need teenagers. It was easy to find people with experience at the price point that we had the time we're needing to play, Simmons said. We could always pay it around the minimum wage and still find people. They do their college, right? That's work for free, but that's neither here nor there. But as the economy improved, older workers were drawn to higher paying work at manufacturers and distributors. So Simmons got creative, drawing on a skill honed in his previous career as a human resource professional. He launched Scholars Making Dollars, a program to train and mentor high school freshmen. And in just a few years, the high school scholars program that had matured into a pillar of his business model. We started putting a development component in there, trying to make sure they're all set up to do well in high school and then go on to college. Payroll data. Listen to this number. For more than 200,000 businesses using Gusto showed a similar trend nationwide. In April 2019, teens made up about 2% of new hires on their platforms, Gusto's Pardue. By this April, the teen share of new hires had more than quadrupled to 9%. Wages grew faster for teens than for any other group. What we're seeing across all industries, Pardue said, really is that teens are stepping up to fill this gap as older workers age out of the workforce or are either still unable or unwilling to come back. So if school and extracurriculars don't actually keep teens from working, and as long as businesses are willing to hire them, maybe this isn't a supply problem at all. Maybe millennials' notorious generation-defining exit from the teen labor force was always about demand. When demand for workers change, teens feel it first. They're more exposed to the cruelties of the economic cycle than any other group. And millennials have had worse economic luck than any generation in history. I disagree strongly with that. That's that's lazy reporting, but we'll come back to that some other time. Millennials entering the workforce amid two significant recessions and the jobless recoveries that followed, meaning that they were always pitted against legions of laid-off, more experienced workers, said Northeastern University economist Alicia Sanzermo-Destino. Millennial teens also face stiff competition from another huge reservoir of talented, hardworking adult competitors, a mathematica senior researcher who tracks youth and employment trends. The immigration population soared through the millennial era, with the foreign-born share of the population peaking at 2018 at its highest level since 1850. It's declined since, 
partly due to immigration policies of the Trump area and restrictions related to the coronavirus pandemic. But meanwhile, many of the entry-level jobs that drew Gen X into the workforce began evaporating as millennials hit the job market. Low-wage teen workers at video rental stores were replaced by the high-wage adult programmers at the few video streaming giants. Paper carriers simply phased out over time. Highly skilled adults who made newspapers available online delivered by internet protocols rather than by bicycles. It's a changing world out there. It was easy for everybody to say, well, millennials were lazy and didn't want to work. But if there wasn't any jobs for them, maybe it was an unfair stereotype. We should always go back and revisit things that we assumed was true, especially now because there's certain cohorts that still think millennials are the young kids. They're not. They're in their 30s, early 40s. They've got families of their own. They're working. They're in the workforce. Get rid and update your stereotypes, please. And maybe, just maybe, we didn't have it right to start with if you just thought it was a lazy generation. Maybe there were some extenuating circumstances that they had to adapt and overcome. Plus, if you don't update your stereotypes and you don't get an accurate picture, how are you going to judge them going forward when we start talking about culture and politics for what's going to be the dominant cohort for the next 20, 30 years? More Heard Tell right after this. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Uh, welcome to Hurtel. We are back with our boy Roy, that's not me saying that, that's actually his Twitter handle because he's just funny like that. Roy Matthews is back on the program. Been a minute since we talked to him. Uh, he does public policy for the uh, Alliance for Innovation and Infrastructure, but we're going to talk a little foreign policy today. Roy, how you been, my friend? I've been pretty good. How about yourself? Uh, thrilled to see you again. Uh, okay, I love going, I love foreign policy. We're kind of in an isolation in this face in America. Let's just be honest. America's not really paying attention overseas unless it was Afghanistan. They've kind of paid attention to Ukraine a little better, I think, than some other things, but that's kind of waning. So why in the world do we need to pay attention to Kazakhstan all of a sudden? Well, most Americans don't know anything about Kazakhstan except for the Sasha Bowen character, Cohen character, uh, Borat. But Kazakhstan is actually a pretty important country, both geostrategically and for um, energy resources. Uh, Kazakhstan uh, exports 
I think 80% of their exports are oil and natural gas. Um, a lot of it used to go through Russia, but in recent time, there has been a lot of instability within the Kazakh regime. And the new president of Kazakhstan, um, Kasim Jomar Tokayev, has actually um, thumbed his nose publicly at the Russians and in doing so has um, encountered some difficulty with exporting that oil and gas um, to Europe. So there is a good opportunity here for the US or other Western countries to both um, peel away a, what has been a very historically Russian ally and also uh, counteract Chinese investment for their Belt and Road initiatives. That, that is a proposal to flood markets with Chinese products and allow the Chinese government to buy up strips of land and por portions of uh, geostrategic areas that they feel uh, would benefit their military. Now, so let's back up and make sure because people probably aren't real familiar with it. So let's just make sure everybody's on the same page. This is, of course, they were dominated by the Soviets like everybody else in that region for many, many decades. Their relationship has been pretty Moscow centric uh, over the last little bit. But then we had this meeting. Uh, he actually, you're not overstating it. He, this is in public. This was at a meeting in Europe. And he told him, he's like, we're not going to recognize Donetsk and Los, the breakaway regions in uh, Ukraine that Russia is finagling and frankly lying about to try to make them their own country so they can annex them, take them over, dominate them. This was a really big deal. And it didn't seem to get a lot of press, especially in Western media. That's right. It's a pretty unprecedented for a Kazakh president or Kazakh leader to go on stage with a Russian president and tell him to his face that we are not going to recognize recognize the breakaway so-called republics of Luhansk and Donetsk, and also that they were not going to provide any military aid um, to the Ukraine war. And that has set off a lot of alarm bells within the Russian regime. Russian state media has been going on these tirades and threatening um, Kazakh over their Kazakhstan over their lack of support. And there have been several instances of Russian courts and the Russian government taking uh, retaliatory measures towards the Kazakh government for Tokayev's um, what they call ingratitude. Yeah. So who is give us a little background on this guy, because there's some debate even within his own country of his legitimacy. Of course, Russia's all kinds of well, you're not legitimate because now he's not playing ball with them. So <laughs> take that for what that's worth. But even in his own country, you know, this isn't this isn't a super stable guy. Is this politically calculated that he's going after Putin? Is this a matter of principle for him? Is it somewhere in the middle? Just give us some background on this guy. It's a little bit in the middle. And, you know, I, a big uh, objection to um, the sort of deification of Volodymyr Zelensky is that Ukraine's a very corrupt country and we don't really know sort of what um, his deal is. And it's sort of the same situation for Kazakhstan. Tokayev was the dictator. Dictators Nazarbayev's longtime deputy. Nazarbayev ruled Kazakhstan from its founding in the 1990s up until just recently in 2020. So he is very, very close to the old dictatorship. Um, but he has recognized that because Russia intervened into Kazakhstan and kept him uh, as president, uh, this was in back in earlier this year. Um, there were a couple of anti-government protests over fuel price increases, and that led to rioting and. A lot of people were killed and the Russian regime had to send in um, special forces to help quell the rioting. And so a lot of the ordinary Kazakh people see Tokayev as just another Russian puppet who wasn't really elected, even though there was a snap election right after um, all this chaos died down. And so Tokayev, for him, he wants to appear legitimate because he wants to stay in power. And in order to do that, he kind of has to thumb his nose at the um, well, at his patron, Russia. And in doing so, it's opened up 
a couple of opportunities for China, which Kazakhstan shares an eastern border with, to sort of fill that investment gap, fulfill um, fulfill what Russia is not doing, not facilitating Kazakh exports, not investing in infrastructure and other sorts of projects. Now, let's be adults here because we understand this is a different cultural region. Like you said, he has deep ties to the old regime, so he knows he knows how the sausage is made. He knows the game. So we know uh, Lukashenko, and we know how he is. He's he's seen as a puppet, but he will also occasionally thumb his nose at Putin for the good. Uh, Erdogan in Turkey, he plays both sides against the middle. He, he just publicly kind of made Putin look bad a couple weeks ago, and then you find out this week he's facilitating the Iran stuff under the table to help Putin out. Yep. Is it what it appears to be? Because in this region with these players, that's a fair question to always ask is, is what we're seeing when you see something that public to Vladimir Putin, is that something Putin's maybe playing along with? Because this is somebody he propped up with. Is that a concern? It is a concern. However, the actions taken by the Russian state show that Tokayev really is acting out of his own self-interest here. There was a uh, court order from a uh, Russian federal court that halted um, oil exports through the Caspian Oil Consortium, which is this uh, oil company in Kazakhstan that exports 80% of Kazakh oil, which is a massive amount of resources. And they, they what this court did was um, issued an injunction to halt all exports for 30 days out of some quote unquote corruption allegations. Um, this obviously um, frightened Tokayev because he doesn't want to be known as the guy who just took that lying down and led to the, the Kazakh economy shrinking. So he has actually directed the Kazakh state oil company, Kazmonai Gas, to start looking for alternate routes to other markets besides Russia for Kazakh gas. And it's already starting to happen. Um, Tokayev also announced that they, he is going to prioritize shipping more oil to Europe since obviously the Kazakh oil needs a market and Russia is a direct competitor and is also under heavy sanctions that are targeting oil and gas. Um, so Tokayev really is trying to shore up his own legitimacy. And I think the fact that the Russians are directly targeting the Kazakh economy and Tokayev is responding is that this is these actions are um, Tokayev's actions alone. Okay, so China makes this interesting, talking to our buddy Roy uh, back on her tell again. China makes this interesting for a couple of reasons, because, yeah, they and, you know, Xi and Putin are allies right now, but they're not natural allies. They're nat they're, they're going to bump heads again somewhere down the road. China is showing some interest here. This is just another case, along with some others, where I don't think they would mind expanding business in Kazakhstan like they have some other places, even if it needles the Russians a little bit, because one is... This is how they expand their power. They do it financially. And two is you explain for people that don't have a map in front of them geographically. If you're going to do a Belt and Road Initiative and you're going to link Asia and Europe, this is one of those places you just physically have to go to, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, Kazakhstan sits on the one of the ancient old Silk Road pathways. And in order for Chinese products and Chinese investment to have a, a literal roadway to Europe, you're going to need to develop Kazakh infrastructure and transportation routes. So that's what the Chinese have done is they've sort of looked at Russian meddling in Kazakhstan and said, well, all right, this plays to our advantage because the Kazakhs, the, at least the Kazakh elites are looking for investments, looking for partnerships because everyone likes some Chinese money nowadays. So what they have, so what the Chinese have done is they have over 700 joint ventures between Kazakh and Chinese companies as of now. And China has become uh, Kazakhstan's largest trading partner and the biggest source of foreign direct investment. 
But this also doesn't really sit well with the Kazakh people um, because most of Kazakhstan are ethnic Kazakhs, along with some Uyghurs and other sort of Turkic steppe people, um, which are the same people that the Chinese have been imprisoning in the western province of Xinjiang. Excuse my pronunciation of that, um, which does not sit well with the Kazakh people at all. Yeah, we're going to talk about that, the Uyghurs, how this all goes together. There's some cultural stuff going on underneath this because politics and culture, doesn't matter what culture and politics you're talking about, they're going to go together. Talking to our buddy Roy Matthews, going to take a quick break. We're going to come back more on Kazakhstan. A lot of cross streams here, Russia, China, and you guessed it, there's even American oil companies involved because, of course, there is. More with Roy <laughs> Matthews right after this. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Roy Matthews is back with us on the program. Talking a little foreign policy today. Kazakhstan, we love going overseas, getting a broad perspective. Here's another one of those countries. You know, Crossroads is not putting it too fine a point on it, is it, Roy? Because we have China, we have Russia. Obviously, you have the surrounding countries. None of them are particularly stable. And the biggest private exporter of oil is Chevron. That's an American company last time I checked. Uh, what's the stability factor here for this, especially if they start doing things with the gas, oil? We know how those things go. Talk about the stability of the country, especially if they start trying to switch from Russia to China and then maybe back again when it's advantageous to the regime. Certainly. So the Kazakh elites are very much uh, interested in more Chinese investment. Uh, they understand that it's ultimately going to hit their bottom line if Tokayev decides to anger the Russians and the Russians can shut off um, pipeline routes through Russia that take their oil to market. Uh, however, the ordinary Kazakhs have demonstrated, protested, and even rioted over um, additional Chinese projects in their country. Um, there were protests, obviously, over the uh, 2018 whistleblower um, that used to teach in the Uyghur concentration camps in China. Uh, this was a teacher who was an ethnic Kazakh who came to the press and who really sort of exposed um, the sterilization, the torture, uh, and the cultural genocide that's happening in these Chinese concentration camps. Um, and ordinary Kazakhs have um, protested against a scheme by the Kazakh government to allow Chinese investors and sometimes Chinese citizens to buy up large swaths of arable land in Kazakhstan, which is a huge issue because Kazakhstan is sits on a steppe, it's very dry, it's very arid, uh, and it has a very cold winter. And so the Kazakh people worry about their own ability to provide food for themselves, whereas if the Chinese were to buy it, they're scared that the food will just be shipped to China. Yeah, and it's not just they have the largest diaspora of the Uyghurs coming out of China, both refugees and just naturally, because this is a mix of, like you said, Turkish steppe type peoples. There's a lot of different ethnic groups, even inside the ethnic groups here. Um, a bigger picture a little bit because you have these look these folks aren't dumb they see what's going on in sri lanka they see what's going on in other parts of the world with china it's not just culturally is it they're worried about self-identity and national sovereignty when it comes to taking this chinese money because everybody got a cell phone even in kazakhstan now and they're seeing like wait a minute it comes with stuff on the back ends if we don't make good on our part of it no, absolutely. You couldn't have said it better. Um, and it's good that you brought up Sri Lanka because that's one of the biggest examples of the Chinese using debt traps 
to seize control of strategic as well as economically beneficial ports. Um, there is a port in Sri Lanka that was built completely with Chinese money, Chinese construction workers, Chinese materials. Um, and when the Sri Lankans could not pay for it, the Chinese just seized it. And now they have control of both a military base and a port. So the Kazakhs sort of look at uh, another example of um, factory relocations. Uh, the Chinese have attempted to relocate a lot of their heavy manufacturing, agricultural and industrial factories away um, from China and into Kazakhstan. And most of the Kazakhs don't want that because they see um, those bringing in a lot of um, Chinese workers. And what people need to understand is, is when China goes and invests in these places, they're not necessarily hiring the local population. Um, the Kazakhs can sort of make up support industries or have very limited roles in economies surrounding these large complexes, but it's mainly Han Chinese workers and it does, and those cultures do clash. There is a lot of historical animosity there. Um, and it makes a lot of the ordinary Kazakhs very, very nervous about, um, different Chinese investment schemes in Kazakhstan. Yeah. Roy Matthews joining us. Okay. All of that said, all that history, all that culture, all that politics we just went through, you argue in your piece, International Politics Digest, that if we had a coherent foreign policy, there would be an opening here for uh, America or maybe the broader West, maybe Europe, to get a foothold of support here. Run us down the list. Pitch it to us like you were selling it to the EU. Why should they, or America, why should they step in here and try to fill the power vacuum away from Putin and make Kazakhstan more of an ally? Well, first off, I'd keep going back to oil and gas. You mentioned Chevron and American oil companies. Chevron and other American oil companies have been involved in Kazakhstan since its independence in the 1990s. They know that there's massive oil and gas deposits in the country, and they've reaped enormous profit from uh, building facilities, building refineries, and facilitating the transport of those resources. The U.S. has an opportunity here to, A, make some money and promote U.S. and promote U.S. investment instead of the alternative, which is Chinese and Russian investment, and also help supply Europe, which is now being um, subject to Russian geostrategic pressure via their own gas deposits as a way for Europe to get uh, a good source of energy without having to go through Russia. Um, so we already have a good strategic foothold through Chevron, through all these oil and gas companies. But the Cossack leadership needs to know that there are some other party out there that would be willing to invest and develop this economy. And in terms of Chinese investment with a lot of strings attached, attached and a cultural genocide happening that will not mesh well with the local populace and Russia, which is actively attacking their economy right now, U.S. investment looks very, very appealing. Um, for the for Kazakhstan, but the biggest uh, barrier to that is I have a good quote from one of the articles I cited is um, we don't really pay attention to Central Asia. Um, one of the one of these um, articles that I cited, uh, this is an entrepreneur in Kazakhstan uh, who was looking for uh, Chinese investment for a wind energy project, and he says, you know, quote, we traveled to the United States a few times, but when the quest first question was quote where is Kazakhstan? You understand they're not going to give me the money, end quote. And that's from a uh, piece that I cited in my essay. So it's very much just a lack of awareness, a lack of what Kazakhstan could do for us. Um, that's really holding the U.S. response back. Yeah, I think we get a little obsessed with more of the superpowers dealing with China, dealing with Russia. Not that we shouldn't, 
there's a lot of other things going on in the world. You can start clobbering three or four or five of those countries together and you start getting kind of close. It's just a, we're, we're just in that period where our country just isn't paying attention overseas. It's going to bite us in the butt one of these days, I'm sure. Uh, Roy Matthews, this is great stuff. I hope people learned a little bit more about this region. Um, if nothing else, maybe they'll know that they need to pay attention to this going forward when the headlines pop up, either overseas media. Let folks know where they can follow you until we get you back again, my friend. What you normally do, because you don't always do foreign policy, you're usually off on other things. Uh, let folks know where they can follow you and what you got going on, my friend. Sure. You could follow me on Twitter at your boy underscore Roy 98 and with a Y in your boy. Uh, and you can also find me on LinkedIn and through the Young Voices talent page if you want to see any other articles or media appearances that I've made. Yeah, you do good work, my friend. It's great talking to you again. Let's do it again real, real soon. Let us know when you got something coming out and we'll be happy to hash it out here on Hertel. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks, buddy. Tell. Okay, been a minute since she's been here, but she's been here a couple times before. Thrilled to reconnect. She was busy getting yet another advanced degree because she's just that sort of smart, good friend of ours, Young Voices contributor. Uh, Cassandra Sean's back on the program. Welcome back. Been a while. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. I'm uh, happy to be back. Uh, she just finished up yet another master's degree at the University of Chicago in public policy. She also went to a little school called Cambridge you might have heard of. I guess if you have to go to school overseas, that's not too shabby. And went to some place called UCLA. Uh, really sharp young lady. We always enjoy talking to her. Let's talk something kind of semi-domestic because it's only 90 miles off the coast, but it's been a thorn in the side of the U.S. policy and it's been a rough road for its people for many, many years. Cuba uh, hasn't been getting as much press in the U.S. as it normally would. There's been other issues going on, but things are getting kind of ugly down there, aren't they? Yeah, I've heard some people discuss it as kind of like the worst humanitarian crisis Cuba's faced in the past hundred years. So uh, definitely something to be concerned about here in the U.S., I think. Um, now, that's keep- saying something, if that is accurate, considering everything that's gone on there over the last hundred years. Mm-hmm. Let's start with this, because I want to start big picture. Before we get into the econo- the current economic crisis and the healthcare crisis and the fuel crisis, some of that's universal to other parts of the world. Some of it is unique to Cuba because of the situation they're in. I want to start big picture, though, because our um, socialist democratic friends love to talk about Cuba, and they will blow off any problems that Cuba's having. Is like, well, of course they're having problems. There's an embargo. Now, we know the embargo isn't what it used to be. There's semi-relations. It's formal. It's informal. It changes. In fact, we're going to talk in a minute. Breaking news uh, just a couple of days ago, the Cuban government on financial reforms letting U.S. money back into the country. We'll talk about that in a minute. Turn down the noise on that, though, because, of course, the embargo has an economic effect. That's why it's there. What's the status of that? What's noise? What is the embargo? What is the bad policy of the government? Where's the ratio on that so we can kind of get to the truth of what's actually going on there before you get to the specific issues? Yeah, I mean, Cuba has an embargo, or we have an embargo currently in place against Cuba. There definitely definitely is a lot of noise around kind of like 
uh, how exactly is the U.S. kind of like, sticking its thumb on Cuba for no reason? Um, that's the first thing. And secondly, um, what is the U.S.'s fault? What is Cuba's fault? What Cuban government's fault? Right. Um, I think there's an interesting uh, there's an interesting stat. I think uh, Russia has loaned. Um, I think two years ago they loaned to Cuba over a billion dollars to improve its um, infrastructure. And Cuba, the money is gone. That's vanished. Um, Cuba. They're, they are also suffering, I mean, deeply from the diesel and with the fuel price crisis right now. Um, part of that is Russia, kind of, but they get most of their oil from Venezuela. So not really. Venezuela has their own, um, they're having their, their own issues over there. So they're kind of kind of trickling back to Cuba. But yeah, I think that a lot of the issues we're seeing in Cuba is a kind of symptom of the communist government the Cubans are facing um, and less so much um, the U.S. embargo. One great example that you just mentioned, Russia has been sending an infrastructure investment, a total of about $2.3 billion worth since 20, 2006 until 2019 when they stopped doing this. Uh, and back in, uh, let's see, what's this date? That's okay. Um, back earlier this year in February, Russia actually suspended their debt payments, said, well, we're warming relations. We'll just don't worry about paying us back for this. But that was supposed to go, and I'm quoting Reuters here, that money was supposed to go to, quote, investments in power generation, metals, transportation infrastructure. Well, one of the major problems right now, and we have all kinds of reporting that started all these protests a few weeks ago, is there is major, major power outages. They can't keep the power on. It's an overly hot summer there. Of course, it's a Caribbean nation. So, you know, the heat, it's hot. So there's power outages and things. So when something like, you know, the Cuban people aren't dumb, they know all this investment money came in, but they can't keep the lights on there's no wonder there's protests in the country is there oh no absolutely not also like it's a dengue is pretty rampant and the the hospital system and like um cuba's kind of like mosquito anti-mosquito measures they've been kind of lax lately so there's like a health crisis like people are suffering and sick at home um they don't have any fuel so people are waiting up two hours and two days in line sorry two weeks in line um for diesel so like taxi drivers that's their entire income suddenly their entire life is spent sitting in the gas line there's food shortages um it's a sign, it's sign of the times and the Cuba, Cuban government has to imprison protesters for six to 30 years um, for taking the streets and banging uh, pots and pans. It's, it's very sad. Now, here's what happened with this. They went to the streets and protested a couple of weeks ago, but there was a massive crackdown. And the claims of at least 701 Cubans remain in detention from this crackdown. 622 were sentenced up to 25 years in prison draconian doesn't even start to to touch this the charges they leveled is the usual stuff when you want to round up the usual suspects sedition sabotage robbery with force public disorder they crack down on it but are they going to see more and more of this because the fuel crisis isn't lessening the healthcare crisis much vaunted we talked about some of our socialist friends they talk about free healthcare. well the problem is there's nobody to blame but the government is the healthcare ain't working right if we see more and more protests in Cuba, is it just going to get more and more draconian? Because I don't think the government's in danger of falling anytime soon. What do we make of the protests? Yeah, I'm I'm inclined to agree with that. I do believe it'll get more draconian. And I think the Cubans kind of had one of two options, protests and risk like massive draconian imprisonment, or they leave Cuba, which is why we've seen a massive influx of migration from Cuba um, past few years. So there's human rights um, some of the human rights observers, they're noting kind of some of the treatment of the prisoners in the prisons, the torture, um, 
again, these absurd prison sentences, it's not an easy time for any human um, living under the government oppression. No, it's definitely not. Now, of course, migration from Cuba to the U.S. is not a new thing. Uh, we have a long, long history and varied uh, issues with this. But this new batch seems to be a little bit different. Um, they're leaving in mass again. It's not the usual trickle, uh, trickle that's been going. Um, what do we do? Because we've already got a huge debate about immigration and migration policy. Cuban refugees have kind of had a carve out over time, uh, especially in, the, in Florida. And we know about the Cuban expat community down there. Is it time to revisit our policy with Cuban refugees? Should we be doing more to encourage or discourage these migrations as they try to flee Cuba with all the Dragonian things and all the problems they're having down there? Just from like a human standpoint, I feel terrible for those living in Cuba and starving, no power, um, lack of medical services. Um, I do think that, I mean, Florida has a very close, obviously a very close tie with Cuba. Um, I think that we do need to reform our immigration kind of stance on refugees in general. Um, but Cuban in particular, I think there's a very like close cultural tie there. But also I think there there's something to be said about trying to encourage um, positive growth in Cuba as much as humanly possible. Russia has proven that sending money doesn't necessarily work for improving the situation in Cuba. But um, yeah, I think I am the same as many other or any other political leaders where it's kind of like, well, we have crisis again with Cuba and it's sad that we have to review it that way of like, well, it's a crisis again, but the, mm-hmm. the government hasn't changed. The reason the protests are so draconian is because the machinery to crack down on that from Castro to Castro's brother to the current leadership, that it's, it's almost ingrained in the society. We, we talked about the political and the economic. What's the human rights part of this when you have a government that oppression is just ingrained into it? It's institutionalized is probably the best way to explain it. Talk about for a minute, because you study other parts of the world, especially somewhere like Cuba, it is an island. It is isolated in some respects. When you have institutional oppression like this, how much that changes the dynamic for things like human rights and civil rights? I don't think it necessarily like changes the changes the dynamic. I think it just I think we kind of suffer in the West from a lack of kind of like information coming out of Cuba. Like we um, citizens, we, we barely hear kind of what's happening over there. I think that's the first thing. And I think that um, once you kind of get more media spotlight around what's happening in Cuba, we'll be able to kind of determine this with much more accuracy. We've seen we've seen um, communist regimes fall before. Um, we've seen them stay in power. Um, I think with Cuba, I think the protests definitely come to show that people are aware and sick of their circumstances and they're sick of their government rule, uh, a rule by a government that's not necessarily taking their best interests at heart at all. Um, Yeah, you you see uh, these small infringements on personal liberty in Cuba. I mean, um, was it they have now have like a fish uh, new fishing rules where you can't like there's a big crackdown on commercial fishing. And so fishermen can't sell fish directly to their directly to the average Cubans, they have to sell it to the state at state or state state organized prices. Um, very similar things you see in like um, production areas and communist governments. But um, yeah, again, I think that I think the protests show they're high, they're highly aware of the circumstance they're in and they want or change. Yeah, there's been a push um, public relation wise, public relation wise the last few years. They've allowed more tourism. They've allowed Americans to come in. Of course, internationals have always been allowed to go to Cuba. The accusation is that the Cuban government spent way too much money 
on the tourism stuff to lure in those outside nationals and not enough on the people and the infrastructure. That's the sort of stuff that's kind of the band-aid on the gaping chest wound stuff that really uh, destabilizes a country. So then you start putting power outages and fuel shortages on top of it. Like we said, we don't think the government's going to fall anytime soon. The potential for civil unrest, though, is really getting multiplied by the day with all these current problems, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think back to my my little fish discussion. Um, apparently, the average Cuban they they're they get, they're only allowed freshwater fish, um, like catfish. But they see tourists eating swordfish and all the like the nice fish caught right off the coast of their island country. Um, so I think that kind of stuff like kind of like puts like sand in the moon, so to speak. But at the same time, I think that uh, the Cuban government is seeing tourism as like one of the main ways to increase revenue and pay for these things. So it's kind of like, I mean, in that regard, like hyping, 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 ramping up tourism is definitely a way for the Cuban government to kind of like allocate funds where they're lacking. But the, I mean, for the average citizen, it just looks like tourists have more right to live and thrive in Cuba than they do. You've studied other countries and other governments around the world, especially dictatorships and things like this. This is the core problem with something like Cuba is there's really no way for somewhere like America where we want to have, you know, more freedom for the Cuban people. We want to have more economic opportunity for them. But when you're dealing with a dictatorship, there's absolutely no way to get money into that country that it doesn't go into the government's hands and then get misallocated by that government for their own purposes. And it doesn't get to the intended people. How do you set policy for something like this? Because again, even the Russians who are friendly to that government, they poured money in there. That didn't do any good. Uh, China was going to do a big investment thing. They've pulled back on that with some green energy stuff. Britain has pulled back on some investment. What policy-wise do you do when you have a government that's like, we can't put any money in this country because it's just going to go to corruption right off the bat and it's not going to do any good? Is there even a policy fix for something like that? Um, it, it kind of depends. I think like some of these massive investment projects, um, put encouraging construction and development of these projects and closely monitoring it from a, a foreign government that occasionally works, but not too often. And I think that doesn't, it's, I think China and Britain and Russia are thinking, ah, this might not work here. Um, there's some like non-policy solutions that some like NGOs have tried. Um, uh, they do like small cash donations to the individual Cuban people. Some like U.S. entities have tried that in Africa and they've seen that that works. But um, again, I think like the main issue is more like kind of just working with a government that has no interest in helping its people. Uh, yeah. And what, the other part of this, Cassandra Sean joining us, we're talking a little bit about Cuba down today. Why do we have kind of a cognitive dissidence as America when it comes to Cuba? This, this is I mean, you're almost swimming distance off the coast. This is only 90 miles off the coast. That's a short plane ride. It's a decently short boat ride. This is a neighbor by any definition of the world on the world stage. And yet we pay very little attention to it. And I know some of that's just stalemate because, you know, the Communist Party and the American government, they haven't gotten along. It's been this way for so long. I think some of it's just probably, you know, apathy and inertia. 
Why do you think it is, though, that we don't we pay attention to other world events a lot more than we do with something that's this close and this related to our our country, both geographically, but also just geopolitically? This has been a thorn in the side of the American government, multiple administrations, both parties for decades. And we don't seem to really want to do anything about it and just kind of deal with the status quo. I wish I had an answer. Um, you're right. I think there's like a, there's definitely a lot of pushback right now about like how much attention we give Ukraine and we give other uh, other issues abroad. Um, but yeah, we do like, I mean, Cuba is so close to us. Um, the Cuban diaspora in Florida is, I mean, thriving. Um, so it's uh, it's very similar. I mean, I grew up in San Diego. We're neighbors to Mexico. Um, it's like you hear about issues um, down south, you see them occasionally day to day interacting with people you're around, but we don't do anything as a country. And I think it's a shame. It's interesting you bring that comparison up because, you know, I've been to San Diego, you go to Imperial Beach, you just walk down the beach and then there's a wall and it's like, yeah. oh, normally a beach doesn't have a wall. <laughs> you know, it's kind of shocking if you're not from there or you go to the, I forget the name, the shopping mall where half the parking lots in Mexico, Los Americas, there, yeah. there's a freaking wall right there. And you're just not used to seeing walls like that. Is it just out of sight, out of mind, where it's just far enough over the horizon? We don't have walls, but then we we have an immigrant. You know, we talk about the southern border. This is an immigration crisis. It's a migrant crisis. It's a human rights crisis. Is it just that it's just enough out of sight, out of mind that you don't have like we have the images coming across the border and stuff, and it's a smaller amount of people, of course. Is that it? Is it just an optics thing? I think it's it's two things. I think like Mexico is not a communist government per se. Um, and so like, they're okay with almost showing some tendencies. So you might want to hold that thought. No, yeah, the status quo right now has, um, I mean, journalists are allowed to travel to Mexico, you hear stories right across the border from like, I mean, at those areas in San Diego, let alone the border where you can communicate um, with uh, Mexican nationals and American nationals, but you you don't really see that I think the water is enough of a separation where it really kind of um, it does create a massive barrier. And then you have a government that has no interest in necessarily entertaining bad press. Um, so it's, it's a combination of it. And then at the same time, you have our media where it's this issue is barely covered in the news, barely covered. I mean, you barely hear about it. Let's talk globally just one second. Let's zoom back out like we did when we first started to kind of wrap this up, though, is um, everybody's having fuel problems. Everybody's having food problems. There's a global financial crisis going on. Talk about worldwide how it shows up places like Cuba, places like Sri Lanka. We've been covering a lot on this program. The countries that are already under stress when something like fuel shortages, like the Ukraine war, like food shortages from the Ukraine war. Talk about how these countries that are already on the edge, they go from bad to catastrophic very, very quickly when the geopolitic winds shift just a very little bit. Because people talk about globalism and they use the buzzword it's an interconnected world and this is the ugly side of that interconnected world and it shows up in a hurry in in diverse places doesn't it it definitely does i mean you have um prosperous nations with sufficient reserves i mean even europe is freaking out um the uk is concerned about fuel prices but then you you look at cuba where i mean yeah they do some a little bit of their own domestic um supply of oil uh, they rely mostly on venezuela but any i mean they're reliant completely on their neighbors conditions um, and when those neighborly conditions kind of turn sour, um, for Venezuela at least, or um, they have like a less oil coming to the country than they're used to, and their entire infrastructure is reliant on diesel, um, that's that's a recipe for disaster. And I think, yeah, you, you're absolutely right. We are going to be seeing a, a massive increase in protests because at the rate it's going, like there's nothing else to do. 
Yeah, they're out of options infrastructure-wise. Uh, Cassandra Shen, one last question on this. Just globally, when it comes to Cuba, when it comes to some of these other issues in the world, when you have a stalemate like Cuba's been, like there, there's a hard and fast stalemate here as far as American policy towards Cuba and Cuba's policy towards us, frankly. It, it's a two-way street. What's the better option for us as commentators and just the general public when addressing this? Should we be focusing on the people of Cuba, the human interest stuff, the human rights stuff, or should we be focusing on the policy stuff, kind of the more geo, which one of those two do you think is more uh, going to be more effective trying to get it until this stalemate seems to loosen up either by an event or something else happens? Um, as far as like injecting into the public consciousness here in the U.S., I think absolutely the human humanitarian stuff. I think um, us policy wonks, like we definitely kind of like, um, uh, we kind of, we appreciate policy analysis, but at the end of the day, it's affecting the average person. Um, but ideally I'd like to see it like side by side. I think like you see a massive reaction, people being in prison for 25 years for taking to the streets where that's like uh, something you can do on an average Saturday here in the U S um, but at the same time, you see these insane policy measures put off by a communist government. And I think that, um, yeah, focusing on the human aspects, but sprinkling in some policy would be very helpful. Yeah, great stuff, Cassandra, Sean. Great to have you back. It won't be so long before we get you back again. But until Thank we you. do, let folks know what you got going on now that you got all this newfound free time on your hand now that you're not doing school now. Uh, wow. Let them know how to follow <laughs> you on your social media and what you got going on, my friend. Yeah, you can follow me at uh, Cassandra Shan on Twitter. Um, yeah, just politics and startups. <laughs> politics and startups, because those two things go together so well now. <laughs> uh, Cassandra Shan, always a pleasure to talk to you. Good to see you again. We'll talk again soon, Thank my you. friend. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. That'll do it for her tell for today, wherever you are and however you're watching, whether it's on one of the podcasting platforms, if you're watching on uh, YouTube or the Facebook live page through our partner, Big Talker, we sure appreciate you. Let us know you're out there. Let us know what you think. Good, bad, and different. Agreed, disagreed. Love to hear from you at her tell show at gmail.com at her tell show on the Twitter. Love to hear from you. We've done whole segments, even a whole show just based off things you wanted to talk about. This is a partnership. Love to hear from you. So until we see you again on Herd Tell or on the Good Talk interview segments or on Twice on Sunday or on any of the old podcasts or the best of or whatever it is you're joining us for for Herd Tell, we sure appreciate you. We hope you and yours are well. We hope you're well fed. We will see you again next time for more Herd Tell. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. So much lemon.